Welcome to At The Core, the intersection between neuroscience and fitness, where I have the opportunity and joy to speak to high performance movers and better understand how they implement neuroscience and mindset drills to make them better movers. Today's special guest is Tuck Taylor. Tuck Taylor is a head mental performance coach and founder of NeuroBeast. After Tuck's own experience as a collegiate and semi-pro basketball athlete, he went on to open a sports performance training facility called Beast Athletics. Tuck has worked with over 150 collegiate athletes and 50 pro athletes in sports that ranged from all major league sports, volleyball, race car driving, and figure skating. Tuck's curiosity in mental performance would be sparked when he realized some of his hardest performing and hardest working athletes just weren't performing any better in their sports. With a newfound understanding of neuroscience, he realized the vital role that the brain plays in sports performance. This led to his new business endeavor, NeuroBeast. We are so excited to welcome Tuck to the stage here because he brings about an understanding and development that brings a new way of applying this, not just into athletics, but into everyday life. Welcome, Tuck, and thank you so much for being here today. That, I like that intro. That was tough. I really like that. I like seeing, <laughs> as you were talking and seeing all the stuff, because sometimes you're, you don't, you're not, you're so like in it, you don't really realize what you're doing. Like that was, that was beautiful. Yeah. Like, I, was all together. I liked it. Oh, awesome. I am so glad. Well, you, you're, you're the master of it. I have seen your videos and it's really a joy. And, you know, we talk about sports and we say that it's 90% mental and 10% physical. And yet until recent and not even that prevalent, 90% of people's training is in the physical and only 10% in the mental game. How do you see this changing? How have you seen with athletes incorporating the mental aspect and focusing on that, increasing their performance skills? Well, I think it's like, it, you know, it's definitely increasing it, but it's been used this whole time. We just haven't realized what mental performance is. You know, a lot of athletes that grew up with a lot of constraints in their environment, like a basketball player who plays on the court with potholes and the, one of the rims is crooked and he learns to shoot on that rim. Of course, he's going to now, that's all, that's all mental training. You know, that's all mental training this whole time. And that's why a lot of athletes that come from those type of environments are able to be really good pros because they've had to ha adapt since day one and the brain is adaptable since day one. I think now what we're getting into now is how does, deliberately engineer that into all athletes brains. So you necessarily don't have to grow up in an area that way to be able to engineer your brain to be adaptable in that way. I think that's an interesting word, ad adaptation, right? Because we become creatures of habit and yet things are always changing around us. And so even if it's a small adaptation, if we aren't willing to adapt, we are actually getting left behind as the world changes or as things change. 100%. How do you go about that? How do you go about changing your drills, changing your exercises so that one cannot adapt? <laughs> and so with uh, part of our programming, we use what's called the, the challenge point theory. And basically that's to like, to the extent that you need to add variables to a drill to promote learning. 
And so what you what I have to be very mindful of with my athletes is that if they fail too much in these drills, there's going to be the motivational costs of failure. So they're going to start to not want to do the drills or be interested in cognitive training. Like, cause what I, I have to have buy-in for what I do. Buy-in is huge. And so if I give an athlete and just throw these drills at them, and they're super hard. They got to, you know, fail over and over again. It's going to be, it's going to be tough. But what we've done is using challenge point theory. We, we make sure that our athletes start out about like 80% successful and like having a mistake, one or two mistakes here and there does still promote learning. And we just scale it from there. As they get more proficient at that drill, we add another variable, another variable, and we try to keep them at that 80% mark, but while also giving them time to adapt to the new constraints. So we give them a couple of rounds to really like adapt to the constraints. And it's, it's cool, like from my perspective, I can see how fast an athlete can adapt to constraints. I can see how long it takes them. Um, I can see a lot of different things going on self-talk wise perfectionism like a lot of different things that come into play that are almost like psychological aspects of mental performance come out in the cognitive world for sure that's amazing so part of that adaptation then becomes the faster processing speeds of yeah. increasing accuracy decreasing the perceived effort that it takes to complete a task right for the listeners that are not pro or amateur athletes how do we explain this critical skill in day-to-day -day living? So what it would be basically is giving you enough capacity in your brain to process all the moving pieces in your life. Cause that's where, that's where what you're referring to is like, you know, it's mental fatigue. When you say perceived effort, you know, things like that. And when the brain gets overwhelmed from trying to process everything, it starts to not process things. I like to use like the example of like, an assembly line that gets jammed up and now the whole system must sh uh, slow down so that you can fix that issue before it could go into that fast processing again. And so that's what happens to people's brains. We get, we get so uh, fatigued through scrolling and these different things and so overwhelmed that we can't function anymore. And that's when we get tired from people that work nine to five jobs that sit down every day are just as tired as someone that runs for a living physically. Physically. And so what the cognitive training does is if, if, if and when we give this person a faster processor and a, and a larger processor, now they can effectively process all the different moving pieces. They can handle their emotions. They can deal with other people's emotions. And now you're not as tired at the end of the day. Life doesn't seem like a huge struggle. You can get into you know, states of flow a lot easier because nothing's really taxing you that much at the end of the day. But you are deliberately also setting out to increase that capacity through cognitive training. So that's where like, you know, from for the day to day person, and that's been kind of like the last area as far as demographic our company is focusing on. But like, I think it's going to be the biggest once everybody understands it. So if you challenge your brain every day and you challenge your brain deliberately to do difficult things, your brain will get better at doing difficult things. It'll adapt to that. And now the, the what normally would be stressful to you is no longer stressful to you. Yeah, I completely agree. And you talk about this mental fatigue and mm -hmm. I often talk about fatigue as being one of the biggest reasons for mistakes being made, lack of error detection and injury. Um, yeah. And that's not just injury athletes. I know we talk a lot about athletes, but that could be someone cooking dinner after a long day and cutting their finger, right? Or yes. tripping yeah. on the stairs. So 
as we increase cognitive capacity and resilience to offset that mental fatigue, there has been a improved speed, reduction of mistakes, clear yes. mindset, and much more. And obviously, as we talk about athletes, that is that processing power, but also with anyone that wants to move and be more optimal in their day-to-day -day life. How do you train that? How do you start to train mental fatigue and increase that capacity and resilience? So first, we like, you know, we obviously have an assessment uh, process where we like to assess uh, different skills as far as cognitive skills. So your reaction time, your inhibition, um, your cognitive flexibility, uh, get measures on that, see where the athlete's at. And then we, and that determines kind of where we start the athletes as far as how many decisions per session we're going to throw at them. Because again, we have to worry about the challenge point theory. We got to, we also have to consider the motivational cost of failure. And so um, those are different things that go into the actual programming. And then, uh, you know, we have certain thresholds and certain barriers and certain things we want our athletes to be able to do. Like, uh, for instance, on one drill, it's just a simple Stroop task. I'm sure you're familiar with the Stroop task, right? And um, there's a yes. certain- And for those, those that are listening, a Stroop test is imagine a color yellow is written, the word is written in red, or the word blue is written in green. Right. And you're and you have to uh, have enough inhibition to give the yield a correct response. And usually what what the true task makes you do is respond to the color of the word, not what the word says, because your brain is hardwired to read what it is first before you detect what color it is. So with each decision that you're making, you're having to inhibit what the brain wants to do to elicit the correct response. And that's that's a test that we have and we have like i know like as far as those numbers go like athletes that are better decision makers on the court you know our score between this and this on on that test athletes that are better with skill acquisition so who are my fast learners they're they're, they're in the 60 range on this drill here and a lot of it then indirectly correlates to athletic performance so we've had instances where like we have a cognitive test and it's a stroop task where it correlated directly to how fast a lot of the NFL guys ran their 40s, a lot of the combine That's guys. Amazing. And so that it was it was part of the data that was like like I was pretty shocked by. But then I had to like ask myself like, well, this doesn't make sense from a practical standpoint. It's because this person can respond to this game faster. Why does that make them faster on the field? So in our particular situation. Each of these guys were learning how to run the 40 for the combine test. It's like you have, you're learning for the test because this is not how they normally run in the actual game. You don't run your head down in football. You know, when you're running your 40, you have to keep your head down for so many yards to, you know, create enough uh, angle and different things like that, mechanical advantage. So you're really like running as fast as you possibly can uh, for 40 yards. And so the athletes that were able to, score higher on this troop task ran relatively faster 40 time and in my opinion is because they were picking up on the skill of how to run the 40 the fastest they were inhibiting lifting their head up too fast they were inhibiting uh different arm swings they were able to get their shins at a certain angle and this is all things that you have to be conscious of because it's not how you naturally want to run so they were able to inhibit themselves better and it showed kind of on paper through this drill and it was kind of like a good, like for me, 
like we already wrote up a letter to the NFL and everything. We're trying to get this as a test in the NFL. But like to me, even if I think about I'm a CEO of a company, I want to know which one of these candidates, you know, can adapt the fastest, can inhibit what they want to do and do what the company needs us needs them to do the best. And I think it's such a it's a great read on like potential, potential for learning, potential for getting better. And so that was one of the kind of like our discoveries that we found when we were doing this whole cognitive process with uh, the NFL pre-draft guys. Well, I know we just got started, but if there's anything I'm taking away, I'm doing more strip tests. <laughs> oh, I think everybody's like, like, I'm not even trying to get famous off of it, but I think everybody should just do strip all the time. Like, I think it's like, it's, it's more like, um, it's more like knowing your blood pressure or your heart rate than like, like how much you're actually increasing your actual capacity for your brain. It's just a read on your actual cognitive capabilities. And of course, through training, you can get it better, but like, it's a, it's a good fair read on how fast you can process and inhibit information. One of the things you mentioned earlier on was about emotions and, yes. you know, whether it be you being in a car, frustrated with traffic and there's road rage happening or a car accident, heaven forbid, or if you're on the field and there was a bad ref call or the opposing team is booing you, you actually work with your athletes on how to regulate and harness their emotions so that it does not impact their performance abilities. How would you go about explaining that? So first, you know, our process is, is three E's. It's educate, engineer, and empower. So the first part of it is all education. I think just like, you know, kids are educated on plenty of things these days. I think the main thing they need to understand is how their own hardware works. Like, how does your brain work? What causes you to be anxious? What are the mechanisms that goes off to give you that fight or flight response? Because this thing, these things correlate directly with their sport. So we kind of give them, you know, a little bit of like, you know, anatomy, brain anatomy one-on-one. Uh, then we start talking about, um, you know, fight or flight responses, emotional regulation, confidence, resiliency, uh, growth mindset. Like to me, these are the foundational things that need to be done before cognitive training is even implemented. You know, give them the, give them the foundation, eliminate the mental fat, any limiting belief patterns that they might have about themselves. And then when you add, these are like giving them like these mental skills and these mental game plans for pregame anxiety, you know, teaching them how to set up effective uh, pregame routines. Once you have that side of it set up, the cognitive training is just the, the icing on the cake. All right. Because you, you, you have an athlete that understands how to mostly regulate and now you're upgrading their processing ability to process and the amount of things they can process. Now you've built like a super brain. But just to, to do the cognitive stuff and not focus on the like emotional regulation stuff, it's tough for us not to do. We have to do it. It's an integral part of the piece of mental performance. And the cool thing about the practice is, and this is kind of answers your question a little bit better, is I can tell who my perfectionists are in cognitive training. I can tell who can't regulate their emotions because we're doing these drills that just involve tennis balls and lights and they're splaining the ball afterwards. So these are people that if they're getting mad at this simple game that we're doing, they're definitely getting upset in their sport. And so it becomes kind of like cognitive behavior therapy because now I'm like able to be like, hey man, for the rest of the session, you're not allowed any emotional response to your failure. All right, so now we're giving him the, the, the environment and the space to 
be frustrated, feel himself get frustrated, but then get himself out of it as quick as possible. Whereas in the game and other stuff, he might not be constantly thinking about this time or giving them conscious time and space to actually learn how to regulate their emotions. Like I feel it all the right. time. We'll compete, I'll compete with one of my NFL guys on the stroop and I can feel myself getting anxious and we're just pressing buttons on the, on the pad. But I know that the less I focus about winning, the more I stay to the process of this, the more I can inhibit the want to compete and beat him and, and, and stay focused on the process, I'll be able to beat him every time. But if I get caught up emotionally in the fact that I'm competing, that will now, you know, lower my score. So it's like it's quick, like little lessons in emotional regulation and mental skills that you can teach during the actual process of being a cognitive coach. Because you have, you have to address these things. You just can't have an athlete tear up your lap because he gets mad every time. You got to teach athletes how to emotionally regulate, you know. And you see in, on the Stroop tool, it's pretty cool. I can tell who my perfectionists are because the app will let me know uh, when they get a correct one, when they get a, when they get a wrong one. And it's been my experience that the best scores, they'll have five or six wrong answers because they're going at a speed that allows for a couple of errors. But the perfectionists, uh, they won't make any mistakes. So they're really not even tapping into their true potential and how good they can be because they're like, they're, they're so afraid to make mistakes. So then you can kind of coach them out of it, push their limit on there. And now they're not only becoming a faster processor, but also a person that's no longer afraid of being perfect all the time, which is huge in sports. So, yeah. so you're teaching, you're teaching both in the same spot, which is great, which is great. That's why I love it. I love it. That's amazing. You mentioned being in the present. Our brains are very much geared for past and future because we yes. take our experiential past and kind of wire our brain from the things we've learned. And we're always seeking what is happening in our future as to what our risks might be, what our threats might be. But it is very critical to remain in the present. Absolutely. How how would you talk to someone about that? Someone that is an athlete, someone that is trying to uh, become a better performer, better mover, whether it be someone with a neurological disorder, someone that you know is a weekend warrior or someone that is trying mm -hmm. to go pro. How do we get people to think critically in the present? Well, the first thing they have to do is you have to drop all expectations. Expectations what causes you to overthink. So when you say, I have to make this shot or I must make this play, now you've added so much more cognitive weight to the actual cognitive process. Because at the end of the day, when you look at sports, a lot of the things are very mechanically and fundamentally sound things that these athletes are doing, but they're done under a lot of pressure. And it's the athletes that can drop expectations. And once you remove expectations, now you have energy to put into the actual process. We talk about being present in the process, now you're focused on what you're supposed to be doing absent emotions, absent expectations. And that's when you get that kind of intimate connection of in what you're doing because you can get into a flow state because you're not trying to evaluate yourself as you're doing it. And that's what expectations causes us to do is, oh, mm -hmm. I'm, I, I have to score 20 points a game. Well, now it's the third quarter. You have two points. Now I'm like, oh, I'm not playing well today. Now you allow that thought to enter into your brain. Instead of thinking about your actual processes, you're thinking about, how you're doing currently in the game. When post game is when you're supposed to go through the evaluation process. 
And so like, that's just one of many things that we teach our athletes to do is just stay focused on the process. And I play mental games. I do competitions. I say, hey, you got to get five in a row on this. You know, once you say it's crazy, you can just do five in a row on a simple task. And a lot of people will mess up on the fifth one. It's like, why are you, mess why are you messing up on the fifth pressure, one? Pressure, the increased pressure. Exactly. And they lost focus on the process of what they were doing because they were worried about the outcome. Their brain went from present to future, where it should be in the present moment. And so, like, that's the, the other beauty of cognitive training is because it's one of those things I can talk about it till I'm blue in the face, but until you actually go through a session, you get all these opportunities to kind of get into this like low state slash, you know, super present state where you're everything else in the world that's going on, you are not even worried about your focus on the process that you're supposed to be focused on in this drill. And it once athletes know what that feels like, they're not able to do that with their game. It's like, okay. This is going on. And sometimes we try to use our distractions too as an anchor. It's like once you realize you're distracted, use that as an anchor to get yourself right back to the present moment. Don't judge mm -hmm. yourself for being distracted, but use your distractions as anchors of like, you know, get, get back focused on the process. Because that allows you to not focus on what that distraction was. It's just noise that threw you off of your process. So now you got to get back in it. And it's funny, like athletes just have. I've worked with so many athletes, they have so many different things that distract them. Like I have to trash talk some of my pros and sometimes trash talk doesn't work. Sometimes complimenting them works. It's like, oh bro, you're killing it. And they're like, oh yeah, I am killing it. That's what they think while they're doing the drill, off task, start to fail. And so like I do, or I'll be like, hey, like let's race, let's, let, let's, let's go. And like, it's just a test to see if like, are you able to do this very pretty much fundamental drill that we're doing? and stay present while you're doing it and not get caught up in competition, not get caught up in what, what number you have while you're actually doing the drill. Evaluations are for after you get done, not while you're doing the actual drill. I absolutely love that. And you work with a lot of team-based athletes and obviously one person's emotions, one person's offbeatness can change an entire team I believe it's called, or at least you call it mirror effect. Can mm -hmm. you explain a little bit about mirror effect and how a single athlete or how working with an entire team is necessary to get out of those ruts? Yeah, so it's, we mirror each other's reactions and, and movements. It's kind of an evolutionary based thing. It's how we evolve. So like I have a three-year-old and he, he started walking, not because I was coercing him to walk, but he saw other people walking in his environment. Like, and watching and observing kids at this age from like zero to six is so funny because you see where and can pinpoint where they're picking up on these different things. They're evolving. You know, the, the brain is very plastic. It, it, could, it could change. And so as far as a team goes is you have to get your team definitely bought in on like how to understand and utilize specific strategies when it comes to mental performance, because once everybody's bought in on that, it's a give. It supercharges each other's confidence, resiliency to failure. Uh, the, the expectations drop. Like there's a, there's a, an other inherent belief that you can you have the capacity to compete and even overcome obstacles. Like once you engineer that into into, into a cohesive group, 
now you don't have to worry about performance anxiety. You have to worry about these different things that might uh, spread like cancers on the team, negative attitudes, poor mindsets. They're able to identify those people quickly and be like, hey, like this is not what we do here. This, that's a limited mindset. That's a fixed mindset. You know, we, we believe we can achieve these things. But, but when everybody's educated on these things, you can hold each other accountable for these things now, where if you don't have this education, it's just, oh, like, Sarah, Sarah's being mean today, or or Rob's not a team player today. Like you don't have no definition to like what's really going on, and so you you and you can't. And then it's also hard for people to address it from a non-emotional standpoint. So when they get their emotions involved in it, and I, I've worked with plenty of teams, and I've just seen it happen where like you don't have these systems set up. You know, you're in for a whirlwind of trouble. But when you have these systems set up, the, the athletes like come to police themselves. It's like, hey, like you know, it's it's just it's a beautiful thing. That's really amazing. You, uh, you know, different sports require different focal needs. I mean, yes, there's. I spoke to one of our mm -hmm. podcast guests about skill acquisition versus these attributes, these foundations that are in any sport or or anything like that. But as we go into these, um, you know, I apologize. Uh, you have the MARC method, M-A-R-C method mm -hmm. for, you know, can we break this down? And I'm going to give you two sports that are very different that of, of athletes you've worked with, um, mm -hmm. football players and figure skaters. Right. How would you use that MARC method? And if you could explain to the audience what the M-A-R-C are um, and how it then applies to a football player versus how that would change for a figure skater. You've been into my podcast stuff. I like that. You listened to the podcast. That is good stuff. Yes. So the, the Mark method, that's awesome. The Mark method is all about uh, how, to, how to maintain focus. So M stands for maintaining meaningful, meaningful uh, focus with the moment and purposeful focus with the moment. So like your intention. The A means accepting the outcomes as they come. So not judging them. The R is refocus, which me, to me is the most important one. And then the C is committing. So that's committing to the actual process of being focused, uh, your desire to be a higher level athlete and understand that focus is important. So you're committing to the process of being focused. You're, you're setting up routines and utilizing these routines. You're, you're committed to, to being a higher level individual. And so that was, that's the Mark method. What was the second part of the question? Oh, with the figure skaters. And How the, you compare those? Like the focal points are obviously very different from a football player to right. a figure skater. Right. And so for football, like football is wild because there's so many different positions, so many different responsibilities. You have some guys who are just playing offense. Some guys are just playing defense. You have skill positions. Like it's so, so many different things. But like by, you know, pull a quarterback, for instance, his process is going to be a lot different because these things are kind of happening in shorter uh, points. Uh, his focal points are going to be a lot different. So, for instance, he's in a huddle. He's giving the play. They're breaking. He's checking the field. He's scanning the field. This is all part of his process of maintaining a meaningful focus in the moment. He, let's say he throws an interception. He has to accept that as it happens. All right. He made a mistake. I processed that mistake. He has to now R, refocus. All right. Here are my results. You know, what can I do about it? How can I go about doing it? And then see his to stay committed to the process. He can't allow his emotions to take him out of it. He has to know that in order to yield the highest results, committing to that process is what's going to get him there. 
And then for a figure skater, for someone who's doing like, you know, a two or three minute routine, it's completely different, you know? Um, of, of course, you know, being able to have the, the meaningful focus while they're doing it, staying in flow, uh, they can't have any interrupting thoughts, you know? So you can't have your what ifs, you can't have any of those things happening. Again, whether they're performing good or performing bad, they have to accept that for what is going on too. People, like I said before, sometimes respond negatively to success. It's like once you realize you're doing good, then you're like, oh, I'm doing good. But that threw you off of your process. It's no different than that you, you realizing that you're doing bad. All right. So it's being able to accept what's happening from almost like a robotic standpoint, like not judging it at all, eliminating all emotions. And then as far as refocus goes, you know, for the fig, using the figure, a figure skater, for example, you know, if she messes up or she has a small twinge or, or slip up in her, her performance, not letting that turn into another mistake and another mistake and another mistake. You know, her ability to error park has to be very important. All right. And error parking is just like being able to make a mistake and putting that mistake away as quick as possible. Some people call it like next play speed, but it's just like your ability to like get back present. Um, and then as far as her committing to the, the present moment, I think that would be the most challenging in figure skating because that moment kind of lasts a long period of time. It's all on them. It's an it's a individual sport. And so that, that commitment has to be there uh, and, and trained and, you know, the, the tactics and different strategies and tools uh, as far as utilizing like mindful meditation and things like that for them to get present and what they're doing, they have to have an open mind to if they want to be really next level at that stuff, be able to visualize all that type of stuff. I do wish when I was a figure skater that I had you as my coach. Um, there was an interesting you were a figure skater? study. That I was, I was a figure skater and uh, it's very interesting. At least back then, the second, whatever it was for that skater, the second jump was always their toughest one. They never wanted to start with it. They wanted to have one that surmounted their confidence. And then the second one was the toughest jump in their arsenal. And um, before you got too tired, hopefully build up enough confidence to finish out your routine. And it was mm -hmm. always really interesting how coaches would choreograph this for every single skater mm -hmm. where their hardest jump would be their second jump. And there was a study that was done on heart rate and how young girls' heart rates would skyrocket the second they heard their music play and mm. how much more it would skyrocket right before they were entering that jump, which we know now is not best for performance training, right? No. To have no. these high peaks and to have 180 beats per minute right. and things like that going into these anaerobic type workouts. Um, so it was very, very interesting how now today all these athletes can have access to mental performance coaches like yourself yes. that can really break down all the things. I mean, you can have all the skills in the world. And when it comes to that moment that actually matters, how do you go about doing that? Right. Right. And like, and like, this is just kind of like sidebar, but while you're talking, it was just jogging my mind. It's my experience with my figure skaters, one of the biggest tools I taught them was visualization. Because like, like a public speaker or someone that has to be in front of a bunch of people and it's just them, you have to be able to get to these states using your imagination to where your physiology actually think it's going on. 
so that you over time can adapt to, like you said, hearing your music come on. Like in the visualization process for our figure skates, we would have them be like, all right, what's it like that that first three seconds before your routine starts? And then it's and some of our some of the, the visualization things we do, some of the girls can like record, like they felt like they were actually getting nervous, but they're laying on the floor listening to me talk, but their physiology was actually responding to their imagination. And so that's why I think one of the most underestimated things talked about mental performance is visualization because it's the ultimate cheat code. If you can, if you can trick your physiology into thinking that it's somewhere that it's not and it's, and it's responding to it as it, as it is, you can condition it over time for that future event. And so I've done it before too. I've, I had to speak in front of 2000 people one time. I opened up for uh, Les Brown. He's a motivational speaker. And, uh, I'd, I'd never done anything like that before. So I would visualize myself doing it as part of my process. And my, my heart would be racing, my uh, palms would be sweating. But I, I got to a point in my visualization where I wasn't having this visceral response. And then the, the, the most eerie thing is I walk on stage and I'm waiting for myself to get nervous and it never happened. Like I felt like I had been there. It was almost like a deja vu type scenario. But I had conditioned my body for a future event using visualizations and i think that's anything amazing like that, not a sidebar yeah. at all yeah. it was not a sidebar at all it was actually my very next question was visualization yeah. training and for those that are not so familiar with visualization training when when someone sits quietly um mm -hmm. and goes through it in their minds can you explain a little bit about the brain processes yeah. that are actually taking you mentioned the physiology you mentioned the heart rate that there's those neurons are firing, those muscles are connecting. Can you explain that a little bit of why visualization training is so critical? So it kind of like it it works through understanding kind of like the brainwave states and kind of like what's going on when you're in beta, when you're in alpha, when you're in theta. And when you sit and you calm yourself down, you move from beta, which is like highly analytical, highly critical where the neurons are firing at a rapid rate. You're trying to figure things out, you're trying to analyze everything to alpha, to which is more of a non-analytical, non-critical, more accepting state. And then when you present a question or a visualization to yourself under that state, you can open yourself up to feel and learn a lot faster. It's a lot of how like hypnotherapy works. You know, that's how you kind of like re-engineer different emotional states in the people and have them like uh, understand themselves better at a visceral level through like hypnosis. But like, that's, that's kind of what happens when they're in those states. And when you can slip into like states of alpha and theta and trigger your imagination, you can literally prime your physiology for that moment before it even happens. Cause your body felt like it actually happened already. And the more and more you're able to do that, um, the better and better it could be. Like it, I've done it with a lot of things in my life. A lot of my athletes have done it as well. It's like, it's it's the ultimate cheat code. Like it 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 tricks the brain. It the brain is thinking that it's experiencing something that it's not, and so it's still sending the same signals to the body to respond. And you can condition that over time by making that a practice. This is amazing. This is so eye opening, and it's so wonderful to hear how these pieces come together. A lot of people have heard the buzzword neuro. A lot of people mm -hmm. are starting to hear about cognitive training. 
and seeing it come together for an, from an athlete to someone that has a nine to five desk job and how they can actually integrate this and implement this into their lives to help them is really, really fascinating and very eye-opening. So Tuck, we have a lightning round question for you. All it right. seems pretty uh, low key with questions. It's um, the first thing that comes to mind for you, all right? Oh boy. <laughs> so working out, morning, afternoon, or night? Ooh, morning. Sweet or salty? Sweet. Planks or squats? Squats. Shoes or barefoot? Ooh, depending where. Like I like my Jordans, but like I also like <laughs> to work on my. I also like to work on my feet. Um, next question. I can't. That's the hardest. Okay, the hardest. coffee. Coffee or tea? Ooh. I would say, oh, I've gone back and forth lately. This is, this is hard for me. I just got into matcha. Uh, I'll still say coffee, though. I prefer coffee. Beach or mountains? Beach. Music or silence? Ooh. It's all situational, but I like my music. I'm going to go with music. Inside or outside? Outside. Heat or cold? Ooh, both have its benefits. Oh, like I hate either or questions. Uh, I'd, I'd say like, it's not even hot or cold. I like like in between that. Okay. Jasmine or peppermint? Peppermint. Spontaneous or planned? Spontaneous. Learn something new or perfect something known? Mm. I like both. I like both. I can't choose. I can't see, choose between those. See, this is the thing. With these questions, it seems like they're they're just innocent questions, but from a nervous perspective, we know how important all these different aspects are. Yeah, and how yeah, education like, matters. I yeah, I can't, I can't, yeah, I can't choose one or the other. Like, <laughs> I like, I, there's reasons why I like hot, there's reasons why I like cold, like it's tough. <laughs> this was amazing, Tuck. I am so privileged that you took the time to talk with us. I know yes. we could chat for hours longer about all these things and we barely touched the surface. And the, one of the most important things probably is to actually start to implement it, not just listen to these things. And for those exactly. of you that want to start to some of Tuck Taylor's processes. You can check out his book, Beast Thinking. Tuck, is there anything else you would like to share that we may have skipped out? Uh, I think we I think we covered a lot. I just I just think uh, one of the things, and this kind of been kind of my, one of my new narratives, and we kind of mentioned it mentioned it in there. But when it comes to mental performance. Um, definitely attacking both sides, like understand having a working definition for what mental performance is and working both sides of it, working on your mental skills, working on and understanding a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. These are different things, you know, obviously Carol Dweck's book, but we mentioned a lot of these things in my book as well, but just having a, a, a firm understanding for what mental performance is so that you understand where you can start to work on it. To just start doing cognitive drills for any, for no reason at all, it's, you're not going to understand what you're actually doing to your brain at a deeper level.
So like just educating yourself about your brain, about performance is so huge. And that's why, you know, one of our main initiatives right now with our company is just education. Like let's, let's get as much information, as much knowledge out there as possible through podcasting, through, you know, writing some things in, in the descriptions and posts so that people can start to understand what this stuff is all about. And then that's going to allow for them to effectively be able to use it. But I don't want this to be a trend that everybody hops on just because it's new. I want you to really understand the brain and understand what you're doing to help change your brain. And it takes a little education, right? You got to understand neuroplasticity. You got to understand what goes on in this prefrontal lobe and your different lobes of your brain and what they're responsible for. But it's 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 very basic information. You know, you I, I always use the analogy like. If you tell someone that the iPhone 15 is coming out tomorrow, they're all going to jump on it and figure out how it, how it works. All the new gadgets, all that kind of stuff. And I'm trying to tell you, like, you can upgrade yourself the same way, but you have to spend time educating yourself on the capabilities of the actual brain. And once you do that, it opens up so many opportunities for you. Uh, you're able to overcome so many obstacles. You're able to learn faster. You're, you're regulating your emotions better, so your relationships are better. There's just so much positive that comes out of this, but you have to first educate yourself. That's the number one first step on all of this, is let's not jump into drills and different things like that, but let's educate yourself on the brain and on mental performance, and then take that next step. I am so appreciative that you took the time to say that. I cannot thank you again for being on this podcast and speaking with us. To all of you listening, the brain is everything. We are brain derived and realize you have more control and opportunities than you thought possible. When Absolutely. trained and as Tuck says, when educated, it can improve our physical performance, our emotional well-being and our mental health. So we look forward to seeing you again soon on At The Core. Thanks for having me.